Folks, take it from me, NBA legend Bill Walton. Like all great experiments in American history, the Three and D Love podcast will revolutionize your life. Welcome to the Three and D Love NBA podcast. Thanks for joining us, and I'm your host, Michael Eaney. We're joined, as always, by the brother, Ryan Eaney, and, of course, our namesake, the venerable D-Love, Derek Lovegren. Here we go. Welcome, NBA fans and friends, to the 3 and D-Love NBA podcast. Today, we have a special guest. We'd like to welcome Jonathan Charks to the show. Jonathan is a staff writer at TheRinger.com, and he's, host, uh, he's a host on the Ringer NBA show. Uh, Charks, Wants to remind us all that he loves Jesus and Dallas, and I'm sure basketball's in there somewhere. And for our Friday Night Lights friends, he hey. wants to remind you, Texas forever. So welcome, Jonathan, to the show, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Um, did you guys watch Friday Night Lights? Of course. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I can multiple promise you times. it's 100% real life. Everything that happened there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the real deal. Ripped from the headlines, Friday Night Lights was. <laughs> So you're Actually, saying Tim Riggins is is walking around somewhere in West <laughs> Texas right now. Actually, have y'all ever read the book? The book is amazing. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah. Like it's actually what that actually is written from the headlines. The TV show is cool, but obviously they just kind of, you know. Well, Jonathan, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that, you know, a decade or so ago, um, you can kind of see maybe in the zoom, I have, I have longer hair, uh, pulled up into a bun actually, but <laughs> my initial inspiration to grow my hair long, uh, about a decade ago was actually Tim Riggins. So I'm a little, I, mean, I get it. I get it. Like, I see Riggins, Michael. I see Riggins right here on the, on the zoom video. Exactly. <laughs> I don't, I might he not was have a body of Riggins. Of emulation. I get it. I get it. Is that the movie Riggins or the uh, or the TV show Riggins? No, it's the one from. Uh, did you do a GI Joe movie or no? Battleship. I mean, they tried Battleship. to make him a star because he was so great on the TV show, but never happened for him. But they really tried for a couple of years. I know, I know. I mean, Landry is really making a push though, in, in all sorts of. Who would have thought media. Landry Landry <laughs> be, be the, the biggest star from that show? It's unbelievable. Yeah. What a come up. <laughs> I know to do do that and Breaking Bad. I mean, the two of the epic shows of the era. And he now he's in like every big movie. It's wild. yeah, and he's everywhere. Good for him. Mary Kirsten Dunst. I mean, come on. <laughs> he's 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 doing well. Uh, so, Jonathan, you grew up in in Dallas or uh, other part yeah. of Texas? Okay, that's great. So it's true to life. True to life. That's good to know. Um. Well, I transitioning here, you know, for a moment. I mean. You grew up in the Dallas area. I mean, obviously, you're a basketball writer by profession. It, did you grow up a Mavs fan, an NBA fan? I mean, how did you come to, to be writing about the NBA uh, and kind of get to this place that you're at now? Well, I mean, I was definitely a Mavs fan growing up. I got like I was Dirk came right when I was like 11. So I kind of got to see the whole stretch. I got some really good basketball, but I played a lot. So I played a ton growing up. And then at a certain point when you're playing and you realize you're not going to make the NBA and you have to start <laughs> making us. We've all been B. there, Jonathan. We've all yeah, been there. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I was like 14 or 15. It became obvious that that wasn't going to happen. So then I was like, well, I really love basketball. I spent my whole life doing this. Maybe I could do something else with basketball. So I got into journalism and that was kind of the start of it. That is uh 
speaking of that moment where you realize that a few summers ago, actually, so you wrote a piece a few days ago about some up and coming college players that maybe are rising up draft boards. And, and one of them was, was uh, Corey Kispert of Gonzaga mm-hmm. and Kispert is from Seattle. And I was Ryan and I were laughing here uh, earlier today. I actually played against Kispert in an open gym a couple summers ago, like right after his freshman year at Gonzaga. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this guy's pretty interesting. I mean, I'm a, a mediocre you know, old guy playing hoops still, yeah. but um, I I played against him and I was you know he clearly was a college player, but now the fact that he's a he's a prospective lottery pick, I mean it's a it's a serious testament to what shooting can do for a player's career. I mean, tell me that that is kind of crazy to me that he's he's going to be in the mix of you know some of these elite kind of uh, college players. For well, sure. Did well, he have fall- the bandana when you played him? Because I feel like that's really changed his game this year. <laughs> the, flow, the flow really did uh, evolve I mean, him. the swag is much higher now than it was He's going full year. Capono. He's going full Capono. Yeah. <laughs> last year, he kind of had, like, I'm a really serious, like, reserved swag. Now, I'm a straight killer swag. It's very different. Like, he well, had a clean-cut look last year. Well, it's crazy because, I mean – you know, reading Duncan Robinson's background and story, I mean, I think he was writing letters to the ringer about uh, trying to take your job, Jonathan, huh. um, when he was here in Michigan. I read, and now he's, you know, he's the key piece of a, a championship contender. So yeah, actually, I got a, I got another one for you. Um, so there's a guy at Illinois, J- no, at Ohio, Jason Preston. He's like a okay. fringe NBA guy, point guard. I don't know if you heard the story. He actually was a blogger for a while coming out of high school. Like he had the same thought I did. Well, I'm gonna have to be writing about the NBA. Then he grew and became an awesome player instead. So there's different paths for everyone. Right. Like there's still his blogs and the Pistons on the internet. Like I saw one the other day. He was like uh, working for fan sided blogging about the Pistons at like 18. And now he's a pro prospect. That's amazing. That's like the bizarro positive version of like you you find prospects Twitter feeds from when they're 15 and it's some sort of controversy. It's like, oh, I found this guy's blog. It's actually about <laughs> You know, Rip Hamilton or something. He knows what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah, he was blogging about KCP. <laughs> yeah, it's actually that, that's the that's the right timeline, I think. So, Jonathan, I mean, speaking of shooting, like like Michael mentioned, you have a piece just over the last week digging into that. It seems like it's an area you cover closely. You know, obviously, shooting has become more and more important, and I think you make the argument that it is the you know most transferable skill. Um, and we're seeing that with the guys we're talking about, but you know, where do you see this going? Um, is, is be shooting is here to stay, you know, an old coach that we played for always said, if, if you're a shooter, there'll always be a place for you, but you know, where do you see this going, um, in terms of adding shooting? I mean, it seems like every team, even the teams that have shooting could always use more of it, but what, what are you seeing in the NBA as, as you've analyzed it? Yeah. I mean, I think we're just going to keep pushing this further. Like, I don't think. I, I mean, it's funny. I remember like two or three years ago, people were like, well, what's the next big trend? And it's like, this trend is just now picking up steam. Like, let's not think it's going to change right away. Cause I mean, I like, we talk, we talk about it a million times, right? The sh- shooting is about spacing. It's about spreading the floor. It's about attacking the geometry of the court. And like, when I look about it now, when I look at like college players, it's like, I want to see a guy who can attack a space and like pull up for jumpers anywhere. That's like the NBA mold now, right? Like maybe like dribble a decade threes, ago. off the dribble threes, yeah. the Curry Lillard, yeah, that's... or just off the dribble shooting in general. Like yeah. even if you're six foot eight, six foot nine, I want a guy who's like confidently walking the jump shots and shooting them. Yeah, a then we're gonna go shooter. from there. Yeah. yeah, it's like that's it's. I had a line in the piece is like 
it used to be, oh, a guy's a shooting specialist. Well, that's just the baseline now. That's the baseline skill. You've got to shoot like a specialist, like a specialist 10 years ago. Now I'll figure out the rest of your game. And I think, so there's that part of it and the part of it where it's as more and more shooting, it's more and more about guarding in space. So it's more and more about speed. And I still think we're still kind of going through the opening motions of that part of the transition of the league. I remember a, a, a executive told me like three years ago, he said, in five years, half the bigs will be gone because they just can't guard in space. And I think that part is still happening. That's a great point. I, I love the point about the dribble, shooting off the dribble, because with the rules, with the ability to get in the lane and penetrate to play off of, I mean, defenders, even with good lateral quickness have to sort of back off. And so if you can lean into it and shoot the pull-up, that's a huge, that's a great point. Even, I mean, you see with Adebayo, right? You see with some of those big guys that yeah. can actually do that. It's a real, the big guys don't know what to do. So your, your, your executive is, is right. I mean, you, I mean, you hit again on the piece in terms of the trade-off with, you know, maybe stereotypically these great shooters in college, maybe more marginal athletes in some cases. And then it's sort of that trade-off where there's such a great shooter and then on defense, you have to hide them more or yeah. find a, a less prolific offensive player for them to guard. And you see that with Duncan Robinson or, you know, maybe Joe Harris to a lesser extent, you know, where does that stand right now in terms of those, those trade-offs? Like what you obviously want to have both in the ideal player, but if you had to pick a guy who could defend, you know, on the perimeter and not shoot as well, or sort of a Duncan Robinson or Harris, like what's the most valuable mix right now oh i mean definitely if you can shoot it nothing else matters but it's also kind of like do i want a car with no right tire or a car with no left tire <laughs> like, i don't know i mean the goal should be like what the suns have right like cam johnson mikhail bridges bridges that's yeah. the goal it's like guys who can defend and shoot they're only going to become more valuable because of that combination of skills and that's why i think phoenix has been such a surprise this year at those two wing and they have jay crowder too it's multiple players who can defend and shoot and dribble too. And it's, yeah, it's like being well-rounded, like the bar to get in the league is higher and higher every year in terms of skill level. And yeah, it's like dribble, it's shooting off the dribble. It's shooting off movement too, right? It's no longer just about being able to stand in the corner and shoot spot ups. Cause they're going to run you off that. Now you got to move and can move and shoot be a, what's the word Um, you got to be able to reset, reset quickly mm. to get your shot off again kind of thing. Got it. And do you, I mean, what are you seeing in terms of obviously you, you have the, the work you're doing in the podcast about sort of, you know, the draft up and coming players. What are you seeing in terms of, you know, young players? And you did the piece about college shooters in college or even high school AU. It does seem like there's more training going on. Like there's more skill development happening. I know sure. in the past, there was a lot of criticism of the AU impact and, and not developing skills issues and athletic ability. It does seem like that's changed, but what are you seeing in terms of the development of younger players? Well, I think so. A guy I highlighted in the piece is this guy for VCU named Bones Highlands. And he's 6'3", like probably a generation ago. He's a super fast 6'3 guy with long arms. He'd be like a defense. He gets like two steals a game. He would be a defensive prospect. But now he also shoots 30 footers, right? So it's like combining shooting on top of other skill sets. That's kind of, it's like, I want my elite shooter to also have a whole other skill set. When you combine that together, and I think that part of it is still kind of like shaking out with the draft where it's still even today. It's like, Oh, we can teach. I was talking to, I remember one team told me like two years ago about a player. Oh, we can teach a guy to shoot. And it's like, maybe, but if you're <laughs> teaching a guy to shoot, 
And while my guys are going to shoot off the dribble and shoot off movement, you're always falling behind. So like, I almost feel like at it backwards now. I'm like, if a guy can't shoot, there better be a really good reason to draft him. And hmm. instead of being like, who are the, I still think sometimes there's still a sense of who are the best recruits, who are the best athletes, who are the best players that they'll shake out the board when it almost should be like, who are the best shooters and let's add other stuff up beneath that. That, I feel like that's such a great point. I mean, Kawhi Leonard's development, I think in some ways tricked everyone into thinking you can just teach everyone shooting, right? I mean, he's like, just get just, Chip England and and then and add and stir and you're going to end up with a top five player. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a couple of things also worth pointing out. So one, Kawhi didn't shoot great from three in college, but he also shot well from the free throw line. So that's big. And he shot well around the basket. And one thing, I'm interesting thing a college coach told me once, he said, we, we always look for shooting touch, like at the younger levels, like natural shooting touch that can be developed, we believe. So if a guy has natural shooting touch at five feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, but then, then there's guys you see, they just can't ever really get, like their floaters don't go in, the ball's not very soft. That's what gets really hard. And that's like kind of the hidden scouting that has to go on now is like, okay, if this guy doesn't have great numbers, Let's dig deeper into the numbers and kind of find some patterns that might believe us that he can learn it later. But it's all, it's still, you're right. It's still very difficult to do once you don't have it. Well, and I think the crazy revolution that's occurred, I think this year is, is the evolution of, of a player like LaMelo Ball, who I think was well considered sort of to be, to have sort of that it characteristic for passing and feel and all of those things. And obviously, I mean, my, I'm of the opinion the shooting was sort of what held him back from being sort of the preeminent number one pick in this past draft. And obviously that, I mean, on five threes a game, shooting, I think in like the mid to high 30s is, is quite an improvement on where we expected him to be. I mean, I mean talk about, uh, you know, how that has changed the perception of a player like Ball kind of heading into the next few years of his career. I mean, for sure, it's totally changed his, where his career is going to go, his ceiling, how he plays with his teammates. That's the thing about shooting, right? There's so many levels to it. Like, oh, I'm a better on-ball player and I'm a better off-ball player. And I can, like, impact the game in multiple different ways by this one skill. And I think with him, it was always a tough evaluation because he never really had a consistent track record of playing, right? So he played 13 games in Australia. He had one year of prep school in Ohio. Then he had like that weird year in Lithuania where he played like eight games. With the, so there was just not a lot. And then, yeah, yeah. The year, and then he had the year with his father's league where he like went around the country like playing AAU ball basically, but against like seven, eight, 19 year olds in like a made up league. So there was never a statistical really database to go on. So it was kind of more just projecting his form, which also looked kind of goofy. I will, I'm curious, Jonathan, your sort of thought process or theory around basketball and the, the advent of analytics, you know, I'm an accountant by trade. So numbers are, are, are something that's fairly natural to me, but I also think navigating the balance of analytics and the pure math behind things with the feel, the aesthetics, the, the leadership, some of the other dynamics that, that do really exist in a sport like basketball, maybe much more so compared to another sport like baseball. I mean, how do you balance you know, the qualitative and quantitative in your player analysis and sort of your projections for, for how a season may go or how a prospect may develop? It's a really good question. Um, I think for one, I, I think it's a little bit of a false choice because it isn't like 30 years ago, 
people weren't talking about numbers, right? To evaluate players. They were just using different numbers, right? Like it wasn't like 30 years ago, everyone just watched games. There was no statistics. And they're like, I like the way this guy moved on the Lakers. I think he's really good. You know what I mean? They were like, okay, here's his points. Here's his rebounds. Here's his field goal percentage. Here's how we're going to evaluate this player, right? The numbers have always been around the game. It's just, these are different numbers. I would say with um, analytics, I think the biggest improvement to me really is the ability to quickly look at lineups. And I think that's where they have the most value. And that's different than baseball, obviously. In baseball, there's much less, what's the word I'm looking for? Where the players don't affect each other as much on the field, right? They just do their own thing. I don't know like the, where the word would that be? The variables are independent. independent yeah. 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 All the variables are independent. In basketball, they're all dependent. And now with analytics, you can be like, okay, when these two guys play with this guy, this is what the team does. When they play without them, that's the ones I find always the most interesting is combinations of players. And I think yeah, that's like your, what's like now, your Kings yeah. piece, like your Kings piece. You just, yeah. did. like the Halliburton Fox, Halliburton Fox. Yeah. yeah. Like what? Yeah. Tell us about that a little bit more. Like what, what is it when you do that analysis and it was really telling for them, but can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I think the other thing is, and this is kind of like, I usually are the, I occasionally I'll crunch the numbers and be very surprised but usually I already kind of a feel for what I'm looking for. And I'm trying to find the numbers that back up what I'm saying already. <laughs> you know, I think that's most people with numbers, right? You already kind of know what you want to say. Now you're trying to find the ones that help you say it. So it's like, okay, I, I look at it like more like a Bagley. I know like, okay, in my head, this is a guy who can't shoot. All right. The offense is going to suffer. He can't defend. The defense is going <laughs> to suffer. So he's the anti-Charks player. He's the anti-Charks. You know, <laughs> he would, he'd be bit, off, all, he'd be off your board. Him. So, so yeah. naturally we should pick him at number two ahead of Luka Doncic, but uh, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, I mean, just like in general. So it's like, okay, if I don't think this guy's going to fit with these players, let's see these combinations. Cause I remember it was like, if you look at, that's the thing sometimes with these. So you, if you looked at just Fox and Halliburton, they don't play well together. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right to me because their skill sets seem to align. There must be a third variable interfering with that. And the third variable is either Rashawn Holmes not playing because he's their only center and it's Bagley playing instead because he's not a very good center. So it's like, okay, that's where it becomes tricky, right? Is if you just, it's like you have to kind of have these like skill sets in your mind and it's kind of the construct of a team so that you know, okay, if I see that these numbers say Fox and Halliburton don't fit together, like I might believe that, but I'm going to dig a lot deeper because it doesn't seem right to me. Okay. Now I found the third variable and that I think is kind of the key with analytical with analysis, I guess. Definitely. I think that's sort of, that's the false, I don't know if it's the false narrative by analytics is whichever way you start from it, it's important to use both. So I'm, I'm similar to you, Jonathan, where I see things and then I go and look and say, am I, is this right or wrong? I validate it or, you know, I find mm -hmm. out it's not true when I go look at the, the statistics or dig deeper. And then you have people who start with the numbers and they just love the numbers. And then you still have to go back though and look at the game and go, does this, does this actually make sense either? So I, I feel like that is the flow. And I think that's the, the beauty. Like you're saying, we have access to so much more data and numbers to, uh, to either validate or invalidate our hypotheses or to kind of draw conclusions from. So, yeah, that's really. Yeah. I remember there, they found like, I think, I'm going to butcher this story, but somebody found like an old Dean Smith book from like the fifties where he's talking about all like the basic principles of all this kind of stuff and how he would track his players with like their performance with like just track them like pen and paper. It's the same basic idea. It's just different twists on it over time.
there, there was for sure in baseball. There's like books in baseball in the 1920s talking about on-base percentage. Like it's crazy. Do you, I mean, where do you see it going in terms of, I mean, just you're obviously someone who's just on the pulse of the NBA and on the edge and seeing what's happening. Um, are there areas that continue can continue to provide more value to teams? I mean, we recently sort of looked at sort of tanking, um, Jake Fisher has a new book coming out about the tanking era and just with the change in the lottery odds, you know, that those numbers, you know, changed in terms of the value of tanking, relatively speaking, at least to the, you know, to last decade. So I guess where are the areas you're seeing in terms of these progressive franchises um, that are looking for edges, you know, where are they looking right now from your perspective? Okay. So this is actually, I think it's helpful to, chief track of other sports so my ringer colleagues um well one of our colleagues ben Lindbergh, he wrote a book called the mvp machine oh yeah out like a year or two years ago and he was talking to like, like so the cutting edge stuff in baseball it's not really numbers anymore it's these tracking cameras and they track biomechanics mm-hmm. and they run regressions on how biomechanical usage is going to affect injury rates and they're doing this thing they do this thing now called like pitch construction where they can kind of reverse engineer pitches based on biomechanics. Hmm. So I think to me, the obvious for basketball would be biomechanical analysis. Kind of what I was saying about before, like, oh, sometimes you have to go look at is like shooting percentages closer to the basket, shooting touch. So it's like, if you can biomechanically analyze a shooting form and have the numbers to kind of back up certain types of tweaks you can make to a jump shooter, that, because like, like, if you can consistently teach guys to shoot jumpers, you're going to be the best team in the league every year, right? I think that's where I think it's going. Is like in baseball, right? You have batting coaches. There should be shooting coaches for every team. Like a guy who like the best shooters and they have these like really advanced technological stuff and they can break it down. And that would be my guess is like the team that can crack that is the team that can really get a huge step forward, I guess. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, and I could see that being incredibly valuable, particularly with young players. I mean, you could see it being used. I know you've written a lot about uh, the G League Ignite team with those kind of young potential lottery yeah. picks. Um, yeah, what what are you seeing in terms of of you know that experiment with you know again the G League team bringing on these young players who would normally go and be freshmen in college this year and be some of the top college players, but they've come into the G League and they're getting trained and playing in a different environment how's that going so far and what are you seeing with those top prospects that's a good question it's hard to say because like it's still one the pandemic has really made everyone scramble so they didn't didn't have like a full g league season they had a g league bubble they were quarantined and like it's just really hard to know the pandemic's it's like a new variable right it just is really hard to figure out i mean the big question is like it seems like Green and Kaminga will go top five, top six. So that's good for the program that they got these guys. I actually think other guys they had taught is really good, but that's a different conversation. So then it's just, will the next generation of players? So like, there's a guy, there's Chet Holmgren in this year's class, Emily Bates. Are those guys going to want to do it? That's I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Like maybe with that stuff, it's hard to know. Honestly, it's really, it's too soon to say one way or the other not enough data yet yeah that makes sense i'm curious jonathan this is something i thought about recently is is the evolution of analytics have obviously changed the way basketball is played at the professional level and and particularly some of the aesthetics have continued to evolve and to the point where you know peak rockets harden ball 
for me at least got a little painful to watch at times. I mean, is, is there anything about this analytics evolution aesthetically where you pause and kind of go, Hey, are we on the right track here? Should there be, you know, obviously the rules over time have changed at, at different points in, in the yeah. NBA's history to address some of these aesthetic issues. I mean, is there anything that you sort of identify where you kind of go, man, I'd like to see that changed if I was Adam Silver for a day. Okay. So this is tricky. I think what happened in Houston is pretty misunderstood. The most important thing I think to realize about Houston is they never paid the luxury tax with James Harden. <laughs> yeah. So like, here's what that's great, You wrote a great piece about that. <laughs> yeah. So that's important because they like, they're competing against the Warriors, the Lakers, you know, these big market, big pocketed owner team, the Warriors. I mean, their payroll was scattered, you know, obviously when you had four guys on max contracts. Right. So Houston was always trying to have to reinvent the wheel to win at a higher rate without the same level of talent. So what they were doing was it was like, they're pressing a cheat code to get ahead of where they are. They should have been with their natural amount of talent they had. And I think you've seen now with Harden in Brooklyn, He's playing a very aesthetically pleasing style of basketball. Like yeah. it was fun to watch them now. And that's because he has good players around him. He has a Houston was always kind of scrambling. It was they were like the Oakland A's. Like they so it was like they won a lot because they had to scrounge up different ways to win that was really unesthetically. And they had obviously a very special player who could execute that. So I, I don't know. I feel like Houston, I feel like, is an exception in terms of their ability to win on a very tight budget. And I think analytics a lot of times, and I'm sure, you know, being an accountant, right? Like more often than not, it's like, we just want to save money. That's what it really comes down <laughs> to. You really start, you know, I oh. always tell people, if someone says they want to money ball your workplace, you know, grab your wallet. <laughs> your <resume>. Get ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, or if Tillman Fertitta buys your favorite NBA team, I think you might need to get ready for that too. I mean, if, if Tillman Fertitta buys a restaurant you work for, man, it's going to be tough. They're cutting costs. That's what it comes down to, right? It's just, you, you just know. need to shut up and listen, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that I do think that's spot on, but right. Continue. Yeah. So Jonathan, you obviously, you're very prolific NBA writer. I mean, you're at the top of the game. We both Michael and I, and I'm sure a lot of our readers love reading you and following you on the ringer and Twitter feed and all your podcasts, all the things, all the content you're putting out there. Um, but you also um, write significantly extensively about your faith, about theology, about the Bible as well. Uh, we'd love to hear more about that. Maybe just talk about your writing approach generally, um, how it's different when you're writing, you know, on your blog um, about the Bible, about theology versus writing about, you know, the G League Ignite or the Rockets uh, cheap ways. Actually, like my, I try to keep it somewhat similar because my thought is so much Christian writing is very like dry and inaccessible to people when it's actually super interesting like this is a lot of wild stuff is happening There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of cool ideas being discussed and it's like let's talk about this like we talk about anything else right the way we consume not i mean i don't want to push this too far right but like the way you people really consume pop culture right they would like they tear through like you know the mcu you can consume the Bible in a certain slight in the same way where like, let's find the patterns, recurring character, like the, the Easter, the Easter the eggs. I like it. Literally, yeah. literally the Easter eggs, the Easter eggs. <laughs> like I've been going through the book of Isaiah. I mean, that could be a, you know, a whole TV. That could be 10 TV shows. There's so much cool stuff happening. It's like, 
let me break this down to people who may not. And I think a lot of it too. So I didn't grow up in the church. So like, I feel like I can sometimes see this stuff with fresh eyes as opposed to like growing up hearing the story and kind of internalizing it and not even thinking about that's really insane that this happened, right? Like that's really insane that there's historical evidence that a guy prophesied Jesus 800 years before that or 700, whatever, how many years before it actually happened. Let's look into that. Wow, this really actually happened. This is like a freaking fairy tale. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> like that kind of, that approach to it, I think is like, can make it a little more accessible to people. That's the Old Testament. You know, you kind of have to dig a little deep into it to get the, the true meat off it. Well, and I love that. I mean, not to be able to not have the, the felt board trauma that came from Sunday school that uh, I, I, at least, I can at least, you know, speak to my own experience. Right. I, I think the fascinating thing for me, and this is influenced by, by a guy I follow named Greg Boyd, who, who speaks, you know, through this lens of the Old Testament, kind of constantly pointing towards Jesus. Right. It's always yeah. kind of pointing towards Jesus. And if you look at the Old Testament is almost sort of a story of an unreconciled people to their God. It makes a whole heck of a lot more sense than maybe some of the other theological perspectives that have been bandied around over the years to sort of justify some of the maybe more negative things that have occurred. For sure. What do you mean by the felt board? That sounds funny. Oh, I, I, you kind of the quintessential, you know, five, six, seven year old Sunday school, you've got sort of, you know, Moses on a, on a little uh, felt character, you kind of throw him up on the board and you tell the story of him crossing the, the sea or, okay. you know, you got, you got a big brown boat that's cut out of felt that you stick on this board and talk about, you know, Noah. And, and meanwhile, at like five or six, I'm like, wait, so everybody on earth died besides this guy <laughs> on a boat. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> hey, Jonathan, I mean, as you said, you're a Texas forever guy. You grew up, um, and kind of the Friday night, Friday night lights milieu, um, but not in the church, not in sort of faith. Can you tell us about your story of coming to faith and just your experience growing up in Texas, you know, not being a part of a church necessarily, and then kind of later in life, um, growing that part of your life? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think probably one misconception, like, so like, I put it this way, my, all my close friends growing up, none of their parents are from Texas. So Texas has changed a lot in the last 20 years in terms of, so it is, you people sometimes kind of have like, you know, Dallas, that old TV show and the, but like tech Dallas and Houston are like, just, they're like mega cities for people. So you come here and there's still like the Texas culture, but it's not the same as it was. It's like growing up anywhere else in a lot of ways. So yeah, I just, my parents, my parents both grew up in church, kind of walked away, didn't raise me in a traditional Christian church. And my friends didn't either. And so I just didn't really know that many Christians or, I mean, obviously I was aware of it, but I was never like really, it was never like, oh, I'm not choosing to do something or I never felt like excluded from not being at church. It was just totally normal. We just all watched football on the weekends, right? <laughs> yeah. So that was just like normal. A different kind of church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's not much grace in the church of the Cowboys. Let me tell you that. Not, or much or much redemption in the end. It's a sad story all the way through. So yeah, so I just, I mean, for me, I just never really thought about it. Like, I just kind of lived my life. I went to school once. I just, yeah, I mean, I didn't even really know a lot of Christians. It's just funny to say, people are always shocked to hear that, but I just did it. Like, my friends, my close friends, even my, like, acquaintances, some of them might have went to church. They weren't Christians. They didn't care. So I just kind of lived my life normally. And then 
I got out of college at a certain point, like, you know, living a normal life, you know, drinking drugs, all that kind of stuff. And I just, I was kind of searching for meaning because I didn't really have much meaning. And I was just kind of an, I was just kind of wandering in my early twenties, college too. And then a friend of mine who was a Christian, I actually became pretty good friends with him. He brought me to church. He introduced me to like the whole thing. I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool, but I don't believe in God. So, uh, okay, whatever. <laughs> right. I, I, I could see the value, right? Like, okay, I get it. You know, going to church, you met your wife here. That's cool. Like everyone seems really nice. That's awesome. I just don't believe in God. And so that's where I was for a long time. I was like, I can intellectually understand the appeal. I don't believe in God. And then, all right, not to go really out there, but so then one night. Um, let's go there. Let's go, Jonathan. Let's let's go, out there. Me and my friends were rolling. Uh, we're doing X and we're rolling. I'm at a concert. Uh, Dia, uh, what's it called now? EDM show. I'm at an EDM okay. show in downtown Dallas, New Year's. And there's a DJ playing. And I don't know if you've ever been to an EDM show. Like, I don't know how old you guys are. You might have missed that boat. That boat. <laughs> no, I have not been to an EDM show, but I, I can. Uh, I'm familiar enough to to, to sort of understand okay. what you're what you're laying down. Okay, so yeah, so I'm at the show. And like, it's not a band, it's a DJ. And then he has, you know, he's playing, he's got like all these images, right? Cause he's doing visuals behind them. Cause he's, you know, he's just a DJ on the screen. And we get there and I'm already out of my mind. And then this guy has this visual of uh, V for Vendetta, the mask. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's on the back of the screen. And I can like, and they're like projecting the mask over the audience. And I'm just sitting there and I'm very, it's like deeply unsettles me. I'm like, this is essentially a demon. Like what is happening here is like, we're worshiping a demon. And I'm just sitting there thinking about that. I'm watching all these people. And I kind of have this out of body experience where I'm like, you know, it's not crazy. The demons could be real. Like it, this is serious. Like we're all rolling together. We're all having this psych psychedelic experience. But I like to say now looking back on it, I feel like most of your life, you're kind of blocked off. I feel like there's like a natural, like antivirus for most people with like spiritual forces. But when mm. you're on like ecstasy, you're on psychedelic drugs, that's the antimatter goes down and you're mm. connected to these weird stuff going on. And I'm like, that's a demon. And if there's a demon, then maybe God's real. And if God's real, then what have I been doing? <laughs> and so then I just remember, I remember I grabbed my friend. I'm like, we gotta get out of here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking at me like, no, we don't. You're crazy. Like chill out, like get some water. So then I'm just sitting in the back of the stage. I'm like, ah. and I'm just like, God, if you're real, like I'd like to know you. And then I felt this moment where I felt like I knew God. And I was like, wow. holy cow, this is crazy. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, like, all right, what do I got to do now? Like, this is nuts. And then I just, I remember I walked out that concert. And I called my friend. I was like, all right, I just got to be a Christian now, man. And that was that. That was like seven years ago now. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Can I can I ask just a logistical question? Did you walk directly out of the show while you were still tripping and called your 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 Christian buddy about it? Well, not or... not directly. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> so, like I was living downtown, so I just walked home, right? And then you know, like a day or two later, I reached out to him. I just I I was hoping that it was actually just right outside the show, just for a variety of sort of aesthetic reasons. It would just be so. It would be right out of like a sitcom or something. No, it's just a married guy with kids. I can't call him at two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a beautiful story can you 
tell us or our audience like what are the things coming out of that obviously you have a, you had a strong relationship with your friend and a church community like what are the things for you like if we had listeners that are kind of at a place of kind of thinking about faith like have an interest you know maybe had it experienced themselves like what are the things you'd recommend for someone like over the last seven years what what are things that are meaningful to you that have got you from this experience to you know you're 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 publishing really deep thick you know, work on, you know, the MCU of the Bible. Yeah, there you go. The most important thing is church community. And I, cause I think from the outside, you think, oh, you go to church on Sundays and then they, they hear a sermon and then you go about your day. And now I'm at church. And it's like, that's not going to be enough if you really want to be a Christian. And so like what our church does, we have these things called life groups where it's like you meet once a week at someone's house in a much smaller group you know, 10, 15, 20 people tops. And then you just get to know people and you get to become friends with them. And then you, because the word is like, I don't get too Christian as you are walking with them, right? That's like kind (laughs) of, you know what I mean? So that's the key. Like it's those like smaller group settings within the broader church. If you just go to church on Sunday, have a story like mine and tell the pastor, like that's cool. But if you don't get to really know people, then it's, you're going to, it's like, I mean, this terrible of the sower, you know, if you don't get to know people, you're just going to be the seed that gets, you know, thrown on rough soil and a seed that's going to get choked up by vines, right? You have to go to good, good soil. Good soil is like Christian community. And I think there's so many, there's probably like, I don't even know, like a half dozen to a dozen people who really invested in me at this church. And if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have stayed in the faith or, you know, it's like that personal investment and relationship that's what we all want you know that's what i think most people don't have anymore because we're such a especially in the pandemic right yeah you know, right like hard to go Team out hard to meet people yeah. exactly yeah. it's like that personal inner face-to-face relationships that's what changed your life and then what's really cool is you do that for long enough and then it flips and now you're the one investing in some other younger christian and that's where you really start to grow in your faith and that's like the whole point of this whole thing i love that i mean it, that is, you know, I think church is a fascinating evolution. I think particularly for our generation and, and over the next 20 years, to, we talk about the evolution of basketball. I think the evolution of church and particularly mm-hmm. that Sunday environment is going to be a, an interesting dynamic, you know, because I think you're right. It, it, church in a vacuum, for me at least, is something that, you know, it's probably no different than, a, than an EDM concert, right? It's like performative in nature, right? And that has value, yeah. but it doesn't it's not connective in that way whereas the relational dynamics you know yeah you're right right you, you use the kind of the christianology of of walking but i think you coupled you know just i want some friends with i want some guys to roll with to like talk about yeah. what's going on in my life and to talk about the pj tucker trade right like the, i want to be <laughs> exactly. able to kind of navigate all these different pieces and that for me is life-giving uh and i can you know, life-giving to me, and I can also kind of give of myself then in turn, right? And, and that to me yeah. is, is something that's something to live for much more so than a kind of a consumption-oriented relationship or, or exactly. of that nature. Like we have some friends that like left the church because they don't like the pastor. And it's like, okay, like, but make sure you go to church where you have the same community because that, that's way more important than what the pastor's saying on Sunday. That doesn't, 
really change your life, right? You can just watch some podcast, like YouTube, if you want a good sermon, like that doesn't matter. That's a great point. And I think it is like if the times in my life where I've struggled with my faith is when you're more alone, you're sort of cut off yeah. from people. And that's really where you can struggle. And I think it's something you can, you seek out, pray for like finding those relationships because yeah, I totally agree. It's like the, that's a great, you know, it's the great story about this, the seeds and just sort of the worries of life, the different things that come up and sort of, you know, can get in the way of that and that growth. But once you, that growth happens, you got to tend to it but then it really can grow. And so that's, that's awesome to hear. And I think, I think people out there to know that particularly in the pandemic, that there, there are people out there that like, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know, you're someone I'm sure as a, as a public figure, people reach out to sometimes to get, you know, feedback or input and guidance. And so, um, you know, we're all out there for people who are listening in terms of that, because we're sure. all growing and struggling in our own ways. And just, I think we've all, realize like, Hey, we need this. This is the only way to really live. So that's really great. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's a lot of, you know, all the time, younger writers reach out to me about career advice. I'm always like, Hey man, the best career advice I ever took was becoming a Christian. Like, you know. <laughs> and I mean, and that's one of the reasons I really felt like sometimes, Oh, I can't believe you would say that. Like your profile was like, I feel like I have this profile because God wants me to talk about my faith. So it's like, I don't really have an option to not talk about it. Like, I felt like I prayed, you know, I prayed like I'd love to be able to make, you know, writing a basketball career. And if I can do that, then I will leverage this to talk about faith, you know, not that it's always transactional, but it's like, God can use you to do things you'd never imagine are possible. And if you'd really like to, and then what you eventually realize is like the stuff that God's using for is way better anyways than what you wanted originally. Hmm. And so it's just like, all right, it's like, being a writer is great, but I have a lot of friends who are writers who are unhappy. You know, it doesn't really fix any of your problems. Like having a dream, shoot, most NBA players are unhappy and they have like one of the coolest jobs in the world. <laughs> Everyone wants to have their job and they're unhappy. They're all rich too. Like none of this stuff is going to make you happy. And then you, you're asking yourself that question. Why is none of these things everyone tells me make me happy? How come all these people who think you would think would have the whole world aren't happy? And then it's like, okay, well, what's the missing ingredient? What are they missing? Okay. That's yeah. That's just great. Great stuff. Um, I think the, I think the, your authenticity and your transparency, I mean, I think it goes into your writing and into your communication. And I think, you know, it is unique. I mean, it is, again, I'm sure there's lots of writers of faith that are out there that we, that aren't in that place that you're at in terms of being open and be able to share that. But I know it's been an encouragement to us to, you know, see you out there, get to read your work, you know, right alongside with your MBA, MBA writing. So, um, but yeah, thanks so much, Jonathan, for joining us. Um, everyone, you can, you can follow Jonathan on the ringer.com. He is very prolific, um, just great stuff. Top of the NBA writing game um, with all the stuff he's putting out there. So please read it. You'll be smarter for it. Um, you can follow him on Twitter. There's also a link on his Twitter profile to his, his, his writings on Isaiah and the Bible. So definitely check that as well. Check that out as well. So thanks so much, Jonathan. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you guys. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us at the 3ND Love NBA Podcast. We'll be back next time. But until then, remember, throw it down, big man. This isn't just a great podcast. It's a triumph of the human spirit. <laughs>